enjoy the, the sound of fellowship, though. Some people say, well, I like it nice and quiet. Well, it's, it's quiet in a morgue, right? There's life here. Praise the Lord for that. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13, and we want to look at verses 16 through 23 this morning. Parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as a people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You note the outline uh, overhead. Uh, We have worked our way through up to chapter 13, where we've come to this uh, kind of uh, transitional chapter on the parables of the king. Jesus Christ, the rightful messianic king of Israel, in perfect accord with the Old Testament prophets, came on the scene fulfilling messianic prophecy. Thus, he presented his messianic credentials to the nation of Israel as presented in Matthew chapter 1 through 10. Then the decision was really before the nation. Uh, What would they do with the claims of Jesus Christ to be the Messiah King? Well, as we find in Matthew chapter 11 and 12, they rejected him. As a nation, as a whole, They rejected him. Now, there's always a remnant. There's always a believing remnant all down through the ages. But as a nation, as a whole, they rejected the messianic claims of Jesus Christ. This is further seen in the hostile rejection of Christ by Israel's representative spiritual leaders, which was really indicative of the nation as a whole. Well, Matthew 13 then marks a major transition in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the nation rejected kingdom truth as found in the person of Christ, they would be given no further kingdom insights. And this is the point of the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Really, these parables serve two purposes. Number one, they conceal further kingdom truth from those rejecting Christ. And number two, they reveal additional kingdom insights to those who are true disciples. And we see both aspects being brought out here. Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you, the true disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the unbelieving multitudes, it has not been given. So willful rejection of the truth results in judicial judgment in which the light of God's revelation is removed. Here in Matthew 13, 11, Christ clearly states what is the substantive content of the parables in view in this chapter. They reveal the mysteries of the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I'm interested in that because I'm headed for the kingdom. I want to know about the kingdom. As seen in the parallel passages in the other synoptic gospels, kingdom of heaven here is synonymous with kingdom of God. We also see these two phrases being used interchangeably, even here in Matthew, for example, in Matthew 19, 23, and 24. Well, in view here is the same messianic kingdom. When he talks about uh, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, uh, in view is is the messianic kingdom. And it's the same messianic kingdom the Old Testament prophets look forward to. It's the same messianic kingdom John the Baptist anticipated as being at hand on the condition of repentance. The same kingdom Jesus spoke of as being at hand on the condition of repentance. 
The same kingdom the disciples were still anticipating for Christ to set up after his resurrection. And the same messianic kingdom anticipated throughout the rest of the New Testament. The kingdom in view throughout is consistently the coming messianic kingdom. Uh, Michael Vlock, in his book, uh, He Shall Reign Forever, says this. In sum, Acts 3, 19 through 26, is a strategic passage for the kingdom program. McLean, he's talking about Alva McLean, who wrote a book called The Greatness of the Kingdom, kind of one of the major staples as far as books in this section. McLean says, with this section, speaking of Acts 3, we have something better than a term. We actually have a definition of the kingdom. And this definition has three components. First, in regard to content, the kingdom brings the restoration of all things. Second, as for timing, the kingdom comes when God sends the Christ for uh, the Christ appointed for Israel after his session at the right hand of the Father, which is where he's at right now. Uh, he rose again, he went back to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, Hebrews chapter 10. And third, the condition for the kingdom's coming is contingent upon the repentance and conversion of Israel. All of that is brought out here in Acts chapter 3. Just get Acts chapter 3 straight and you'll have the kingdom straight. Vlach goes on to assert in this book, the kingdom of God is the great and grand theme of Scripture. And I want to tweak this. I mean... I'm certainly not disagreeing with Michael Vlock. I have great appreciation for it. But I want to tweak that statement just a little bit. I'm sure if Mike is listening, he's really on the edge of his seat here. But he says the kingdom of God is the great and grand theme of the Scripture. And, and, and yes. But I want to tweak this just a little bit and say that the grand theme, even overarching the kingdom theme in Scripture is the Lordship of God theme throughout. This is the grand issue in all of the scriptures that ultimately culminates in every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And of course, this emphasis on Lordship culminates in the kingdom to come. That's the whole issue. When Christ comes at the second coming of Revelation 19, how is he coming? As King of Kings... And Lord of Lords. So the kingdom emphasis and the lordship emphasis are completely intertwined all throughout the scriptures. But the point is, the kingdom theme is indeed grand and great. It is one of the major themes and everything is ultimately moving towards the kingdom. And ultimately, everyone here will either share in the kingdom or be cast out of it. And so it is with great interest that we study these parables in Matthew 13 for further kingdom insights. So just by way of review, uh, mystery. talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The word mystery refers to truth that was previously hidden but is now revealed by God. It's a secret. It's a, it's a, a secret that only God knows and only he would know except that he reveals it to us. Parable is a story that illustrates God's truth. And in the context of Matthew 13, we're talking about kingdom truth. A story that illustrates further kingdom truth. 
And then mysteries of the kingdom, further kingdom insights now being revealed. Well, after Jesus emphasized those who have a personal relationship with him are those who do the will of the Father, as we saw at the end of Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 50. Matthew thematically immediately transitions to Christ's teaching in parables and immediately recounts the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. Following this, we see Christ's answer as to why he spoke to the crowds in parables, which we've already reviewed, as seen in Matthew 13, uh, 10 through 15. And we now pick up our study at verse 16, Matthew 13, verse 16. In contrast to concealing further kingdom truth from those who were rejecting Christ, the general populace, Jesus now says to his disciples, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In contrast to the crowds, which largely saw but did not see, I mean, they saw the Christ, they saw the kingdom sign miracles, they saw but they did not see, and they, and they heard his teaching, but they did not hear, they didn't get it, because their hearts had grown dull, as Christ says, as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, back in uh, verses 14 and 15. Christ said the disciples were blessed. Conversely, Christ says the disciples were blessed because of what they now saw and heard. And Christ is speaking of kingdom truth that recognizes him as the promised Messiah King. Now, there was still much they didn't see, but they did see the truth on a level that the crowd generally didn't see and that the crowd generally was not open to. The word blessed indicates fortune or happy. It indicates being joyfully privileged because of God's good favor. And Jesus said, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. There are a lot of, a lot of people anticipating this. Well, here one cannot help but include Simeon and Anna, as found in Luke chapter 2. The desire of pious Jews down through the centuries had been to see the Messiah and his kingdom. Now these disciples were privileged, blessed, to actually see the Messiah and sample his kingdom in the form of kingdom sign miracles. Hebrews 6.5 says they tasted the powers of the kingdom age to come. Wow, just think about being there. Wouldn't you like to spend a day with Jesus? I mean, seeing the, the king, seeing him perform kingdom miracles. That's really what the sign miracles were. They were kingdom miracles that indicated he is the Messiah doing kingdom things that only the king can do. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Well, last time we were introduced to Christ's introductory parable about the sower, the seed, and the soils. 
I call this the mother of all parables because all other parables build on it. Uh, We see this brought out in Mark chapter 4 and verse 13. He said to them, "Do uh, do you not understand this parable? In context, speaking of the the parable of the sower and the soils. How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, Christ is saying this is the foundational parable. Everything else builds on it. So this is what I call the gateway parable. I call it the mother of all parables, but I also call it the gateway parable that describes who ultimately is going to go into the kingdom and who is not based on their response to God's message. So let's pick it up. We now have Christ's interpretation of this parable. Verse 18, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. Since the true disciples have the ability to comprehend further kingdom truth, Christ tells them to listen up. And he then interprets the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils. They were commanded to hear it. He expects them to get it. The sower here is not named and so would seem to have application to anyone who is sowing the kingdom message. Now in the next parable, uh, the son of man is shown to be the sower. And therefore many assume the same is true here in this first parable. And certainly Christ is the principal sower, but it is not necessarily limited only to him. It doesn't say that uh, specifically here in this parable of the sower. Uh, The emphasis here is not essentially on the sower, but rather on the four different kinds of soils representing different kinds of responses to the kingdom message. Verse 19. Hear the parable of the sower. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside or by the, by the roadside. Note the key qualifying phrase here, the word of the kingdom. The parallel passages are found in Mark chapter 4, 1 through 25, and also Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. Luke 8, 11 says, the seed is the word of God. But Matthew here calls it the word of the kingdom. This is the message of the kingdom. But in the context of Matthew, what specifically is this message that has been held out? In short, the kingdom and the king go together. You cannot separate the king from the kingdom. The kingdom, in order to be the kingdom, needs the king. So the message about the kingdom here is ultimately the message about the king, who brings in the kingdom. When Jesus was born, the Magi came, and what were they looking for? Well, we find in Matthew chapter 2, they came asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have come to worship him. It's not your average king. It's a king to be worshipped. He's a divine king. He's not only human, he's also God who is to be worshipped. And they recognized that. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he came, as he said, preparing the way of who? The Lord. A quote from Isaiah 40, referring to Yahweh, the most sacred name for God. 
Who's he preparing the way for? What well, Jesus, who happens to be the Lord. And he came saying, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, taking the baton, in effect, gave the same message when he entered into his public ministry. The point is, the word of the kingdom was that repentance was necessary to enter into the kingdom. The way that prepares the way for the Lord and paves the way to the kingdom is repentance. Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35 serve as really book and emphases in the ministry of Christ. And there it says that Christ went about in all the cities and villages, quote, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and disease. What's he doing? He's sharing the good news of the kingdom. The gospel means good news. The good news of the kingdom. And in combination with that, he's healing everybody. Well, in doing this, Jesus was showing that he is the prophesied messianic king on the scene. With the proof seen in his doing of kingdom miracles as prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. In the context of showing what defines his kingdom people and how they should then live, Christ, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, said this. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom here. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, Christ is saying, it's not a matter of just saying it. It's got to be real in your heart. We're chosen in your life. Recognition of Christ's lordship and obedience go together. This is the very same thing that Christ said defines those who have a personal relationship with him at the end of Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15. Remember what he said there? This leads into the parable we're studying. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, mother. These are the ones that have a personal relationship with me. This lordship slash obedience emphasis leads into Matthew chapter 13 and the parable of the sower and the soils. In Matthew 8, a Gentile centurion pleaded with Christ to come and heal his servant. And then recognizing Christ's lordship authority, he said, you don't have to come. Actually, he pleaded with him just to heal his servant. And he said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Well, Jesus then responded in this way. Matthew 8, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith. This is faith. Not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east, west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The point was clear. Recognition of Christ's lordship authority is the stuff of faith. And it is this kind of faith that will get you into the kingdom. In chapter 10, Jesus made the issue of his lordship very personal. Notice what he said, reviewing back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus demands that supreme allegiance be to him above all others, even above the closest of human relationships. The entire thrust of Christ's kingdom message involving the need for repentance, which is how his ministry began, 
was really grounded in him. Repentance is ultimately in relationship to Jesus and preparing the way for him, the Lord. The entire first 10 chapters of Matthew make Jesus himself the key issue. The kingdom is all about him. Entrance into the kingdom is all about repentance that recognizes Christ's lordship, which is reflected in doing the will of the Father, which is indicative of true faith. That was the issue put before the nation. It was really the lordship of Christ as their Messiah. How does he come? Well, he comes demanding total allegiance. And that leads us straight to the rejection of Christ by what he called an evil and adulterous generation, Matthew 12, 39. Also, this wicked generation, Matthew 12, 45. Which in turn leads us to Christ's teaching in parables in Matthew chapter 13. Following the parables, Christ in Matthew 16 put the central issue to the disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And this was followed up by Peter saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. At his trial, the chief priest said to Jesus, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This was always the central issue. Who Jesus is as as the prophesied Christ, who is in fact the Son of God, which is to say, one who is of the very nature of God, God of very God, God himself come in the flesh. Finally, it ended with Pilate putting an inscription over his cross, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. My point is that all the way through Christ's kingdom message, the emphasis is really on his person and who he is as Messiah Lord. The nature of him being that of God, the Son of God. The calling for repentance and his message of the kingdom was ultimately about him and who he is. This was the core fundamental message related to the word of the kingdom. Yes, it's about the kingdom, but more fundamentally about the identity of the king who brings in the kingdom. This was the great issue put before the people. Wycliffe uh, summarizes very well the word of the kingdom, word of God, symbolized by the seed is the message Jesus proclaimed concerning himself and his kingdom. There are those who accept this message and thereby accept Christ, and there are those who reject it. And so Jesus said, as we read in in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. This person hears the word of the kingdom but does not understand it. They don't get it because, in fact, they're not really even open to it. Uh, They don't understand because, as Jesus pointed out in verse 15, the heart is dull and insensitive. And in that context, the wicked one, whom Mark calls Satan and who Luke calls the devil, immediately comes and snatches away the truth that is sown in the heart. In view here is a non-responsive heart that is insensitive, calloused, and hard. Under the influence of the devil, when this person hears the message, immediately they reject it as if it is of no significance. Now, the four 
different types of soils here represent four different heart conditions. And the emphasis here is all about the heart. The responsibility here is put squarely on the here and on the condition of their heart. Again, no wonder that Christ concluded the parable, as we saw last time, with he who has ears to hear, let him hear, as seen in verse 9. The heart is the core of one's spiritual being, the place where decisions and commitments are made. D.A. Carson says this, Some people hear the message about the kingdom, but like hardened paths, they do not let the truth penetrate. And before they really understand it, the devil has snatched it away. These people under satanic influence hear the message, but they have no interest. And so they reject it outright. Verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, yet, he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now this is really scary because initially it seems like they're genuine. You would say, praise the Lord, we got a new convert here. Exciting times. No, not so quick. Immediately they receive the word with joy. They're all excited. But it's all emotion. And consequently, it is only temporary. Because in truth, there is no root. Don't say there's something. There's no root to their faith in their heart. This is an emotional, temporary response. It's a bogus faith. It's not true faith. William MacDonald says, It is not good when the message is received with smiles and cheers. First, there must be conviction of sin, contrition, and repentance. It is far more promising to see an inquirer weeping his way to Calvary than to see him walking down the aisle lighthearted and exuberantly. The real test is when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word. Are they really willing to stand for the word? That becomes the test of true discipleship. This is not just about hardships in general, but rather because of a stand for the word. This person won't take a stand for the word. And if it's going to cause hardship, they have no root, and immediately they stumble when the pressure comes because of the word. This is telling. And as I shared with the children, Judas is perhaps the ultimate example here of this type of response. You see, he seemed like he was all excited to join the new kingdom movement. Who doesn't want to go into the kingdom and have a front row seat there? Uh, Judas was all excited, I'm sure, to join the kingdom movement for what he could get out of it. It's all about Judas after all. But when things turned south, and things were turning costly, and the Jews were wanting to kill Jesus, he immediately wanted out. He wasn't willing to take the stand if it meant tribulation or persecution. He was all about the way of the kingdom, as long as it didn't involve the way of the cross. And many are in that camp. William Mounts correctly says, Unless truth takes deep root in the human heart, it will be recanted as soon as it meets any opposition. 
Thin soil produces superficial commitment. In the New Testament, true saving faith is consistently shown to be that which is enduring in relation to the word. For example, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he considers them saints according to their profession. But he does say this as he's recounting the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you're saved. If, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. What if you don't? What if you don't? Unless you believed in vain. There is a bogus kind of faith that believes in vain, that doesn't stick, that doesn't last, that doesn't endure. You're saved. You're saved by this. If you hold fast, unless, unless you believe in vain. John says, they went out from us. Yeah, they started with us. But they were not of us. If they had been of us, truly, if they had been of us, they would have continued They would have continued with us. But they went out that that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This is a test. Does it continue? Verse 22. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. This person also hears the word, but the message is choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. You see, this person is distracted, distracted by worldly concerns, not preoccupied with Christ, but preoccupied with the world. Now, certainly believers uh, can fall into sin all over the place. We see this in the New Testament. But a lot of times these things keep people from even coming to Christ such as the rich young ruler. The word cares is a Greek word which literally means worry, anxiety, or excessive concern. These people are so preoccupied with the world that they fail to really focus on and submit to the lordship of Jesus. You see, other things run their life. As seen in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, this is what defines unbelievers who are preoccupied and worried about all manner of worldly concerns. And many, while hearing the message, refuse to give up the lordship of riches. As I say, the rich young ruler is a prime example. You see, he wanted eternal life. He comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he wasn't willing to give up his materialism God and follow Jesus as Lord. Jesus says, you give all this stuff up and you come and follow me. Nope, wasn't willing to do that. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told the parable of the rich fool who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. No thought for God, just about me. Riches are deceitful in that they promise satisfaction, but they never really deliver. They are deceitful in that they promise fulfillment that can only be found in God. Jesus very straightforwardly on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount said this, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. That becomes the issue. Who's your master? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Which master will it be? The issue is, who or what is going to be your God? In view here in the soil where the seed is overcome by thorns are those who have a divided allegiance that in the end proves not to be genuine because of the words in Luke 8.14, they bring no fruit to maturity. The question emerges about which of these soils represents a true believer and which represent an unbeliever. All agree that the first soil clearly represents the unbeliever, and all agree that the fourth soil, which is said to be good ground, clearly represents a true believer. But what about those two middle ones? Well, most conservative Bible commentators in our camp agree that the first three all represent the unbeliever. The common denominator is that none of these bear any fruit at all. Zero. They are all characterized by no root, no fruit. And that is contrary, you see, to whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. It is contrary to what defines those who truly know God. John the Baptist in Matthew 3.10 said, Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew 7.19. Furthermore, Jesus said that endurance in times of persecution is an indicator of true salvation, as seen in Matthew 10.22 and also verses 32 and 33 there. Paul consistently emphasized that ungodly people will not inherit the kingdom of God and says, do not be deceived. David Jeremiah correctly says, the proof of genuine salvation is shown is not shown by listening to or emotionally responding to the word, but by the fruit. Now, we want to be careful We want to be careful to reiterate, we're not saved by the fruit. We're saved by faith. As the Reformers were known to say, we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. You see, true faith is fruitful. It bears fruit. We often note three great spiritual enemies as found in the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three are represented here in this parable. The devil's activity is mentioned in verse 19. The flesh is implied in verses 20 and 21, uh, which is emotional and fickle. And the world is reflected in the cares of this world in verse 22. Yes, these are three great spiritual adversaries to keep people from God. The devil, the flesh, and the world. Verse 23. But, contrast word, but... But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This ground represents the true believer. This person hears the word and understands it. They get it and they bear fruit. Note all the people, all the people in this parable hear the word. Verse 19, here's the word, those the wayside. Verse 20, here's the word, stony places. Verse 22, here's the word, among the thorns. 
In verse 23, here's the word, the good ground. Everybody here in the parable hears the word. These are not people that haven't heard. You say, what about those people in, you know, they used to say in deep, dark Africa who never heard the word. That's not what this parable is about. This is about people who have heard the word. This is about the masses, the crowds. They had all heard Jesus and seen his miracles. All these people heard the word. They all got the message in that sense. The problem is not that these people haven't heard. The issue is how they respond to what they have heard. Why Jesus says, he who has the ears to hear, let him hear. Here's a kingdom insight. The majority respond in a way that reveals they're not truly saved and will not see the kingdom. Most people who hear the message are not going to be there. They're either flat out not receptive, the wayside. They have a superficial, emotional, and temporary response that doesn't last stony places. Or they are distracted and preoccupied with worldly concerns among the thorns. In contrast is the soil that brings forth good fruit. You see, fruit bearing is indicative of spiritual life. Living things grow and bear fruit. The seed that falls on good soil produces fruit. And note the emphasis here in Matthew on understanding. The true believer hears the word and gets it. Now we're ever growing, but we've all come to understand the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. They get the truth of Jesus. They get that he's the Christ. They get that he's the son of God. Whereas Matthew makes the issue one of understanding, as seen in both verse 19 negatively and again in verse 23 positively, Luke makes the issue, the the parallel passage in Luke, makes the issue one of believing, as seen in Luke 8, 12 and 13. Reformation Study Bible says, Only hearing and understanding the word, a faith that finds expression in obedience is implied, results in fruit. Liberty Bible Commentary says, The key to interpreting the reception of the seed into the ground is the term understand, meaning to comprehend by believing faith. True understanding and true faith go together. Uh, And this is all related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man, that's the unsaved person, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness. To him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. On our own, we never come to the place of spiritual insight. It's not a matter of smarts. The good ground is positively responsive to the seed of the word. Again, the parallel passage in Luke 8 15, and the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You know, I love this verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, for this reason, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Why is he so thankful? Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, 
which also effectively works in you who believe. Some people say, well, that, that just doesn't work for me. That's because you don't believe it. Because if you believe it, it works. Which also effectively works in you who believe. You got to believe. And you got to believe with a good and honest heart. The seed being the word was the same in all these responses. The difference is made in the heart. An honest and good heart indicates sincerity. It corresponds to being a true worshiper in John 4, 23, which is what the Father is looking for. Not phonies, true worshipers. And he said that in the evangelistic context of the Samaritan woman who wasn't even yet a believer. Why is he talking to her about being a true believer? This is what is necessary. A saving faith comes from a sincere heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, It is with the heart that one believes unto righteousness. A sincere heart holds to the faith and bears fruit with perseverance or endurance. By the grace of God, it's never ultimately redounds back to God, but it keeps on keeping on. There are ultimately only two kinds of soil, that which holds fast to the word and bears fruit with perseverance and that which does not. In view ultimately are unbelievers who bear no fruit and true believers who do. The Holman Christian Study Bible says this, since bearing the fruit of good deeds is an essential expression of discipleship, only the last type is a true disciple. But note that while all represented by the good ground bear fruit, they don't all bear the same amount of fruit. Some produce a hundredfold. I'd really like to be in that category, but who am I to say? The Lord is the judge. Some produce a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirtyfold. We're not told what the fruit is, and God alone ultimately measures and rewards accordingly. However, fruit in the New Testament is consistently tied with obedience and the fruit of the Spirit of which love is prominent. Here we have, in this parable of the sower, an introductory parable which shows us kingdom insights that the rest of the parables in Matthew 13 build on. And here are five insights that we see, kingdom insights that we see here. Number one, relatively few who hear will actually be saved and enter the kingdom. I mean, we'd like to think, but that's consistent, right? Jesus says, narrow is a way, few there be that find it. Number two, not all who claim to receive the message are genuine. There is such a thing as a false profession that doesn't last. We shouldn't be shocked when all of a sudden somebody that we thought was one of us just walks away. It happens. These people that received it with joy, I was there, they were, there were tears, they were so happy. Yeah, okay, where's the fruit? Number three, the truly saved receive the word with a sincere heart and thereby understand. Number four, saving faith endures and is fruitful. And number five, there are varying degrees of fruitfulness. While the Old Testament revealed the truth of the coming kingdom, and while John the Baptist and Jesus announced the kingdom was at hand on the condition of repentance, 
Up to this point, it had been a mystery that only a few who hear the message will actually be saved and enter the kingdom. This is why, as we go on into John, as Jesus was teaching there, the multitude started, when he said a few hard things, they started to go away. So much so that he said to his own disciples, will you also go away? The mystery being revealed is only a few of those who hear the message will actually be saved and enter the kingdom. Multitudes of people hear that the majority who hear would actually reject the good news of the king and his kingdom was new insight, but was really what was in view right before them. As Jesus is now talking to the masses in a language, in the language of parables that they couldn't even understand. And this insight continues to be hidden from those rejecting. Many Jews today assume that just being Jewish will get them in. Many nominal Christians just assume everyone goes to heaven on the flimsiest of professions. Fruit is optional in their theology. But in truth, it is only those who receive the truth of Christ sincerely from the heart who are born again who will see the kingdom. As Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. And how does this happen? Well, Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It all comes down to having a saving faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Through the years, I have taught and emphasized that we're saved by faith alone, and I'm prepared to die on that hill. But I have also emphasized it must be the right kind of faith. And yes, I realize that nobody comes there, nobody ever seeks after God on their own, but I also emphasize what the Scripture emphasizes. Personal responsibility. You are called upon to respond. And today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. We're saved by faith alone, but it must be the right kind of faith. It must be a life-changing kind of faith, or as Jesus indicated, a faith that bears fruit. The famous evangelist George Whitfield, who lived in the 18th century, said this of so many converts in his day. They fall away. I mean, this isn't just something that's happened in our day, all, the, all down through the ages. He says, they fall away. That makes me so cautious now, which I was not 30 years ago, of dubbing converts too soon. Now I wait a little and see if people bring forth fruit. For there are so many blossoms which March winds blow away that I cannot believe that they are converts Till I see fruit brought forth. Indeed, as Jesus said, Luke 8, 15, the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with perseverance. These are the true converts who are headed for the kingdom. This is a kingdom insight that the multitudes were missing out on that he shared with the true disciples. These are the true converts. Be among them. Let's stand and have our closing song.